going to take you to a key scripture first, Psalm 103, verse 7. That's what we're going to use tonight, but I'm going to, I want to theme tonight, I want to teach you how to set the atmosphere. And I'm going to give you four key steps to setting the atmosphere. So important that you have to set the atmosphere in worship. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a key element to where you are in worship. In Psalm 103, and verse 7 gives us this contrast to where God really looks at how worship and praise ought to be gathered. I'm going to use this scripture to pivot off to tell you the difference between worship and praise. So this will help some of you, especially those who are going to teach week after next, you know the difference in how to teach them between worship and praise. It'll help you, and I'll deal with this as simplistic as I can. So we'll, um, verse 7, if you are you reading, do you have it, you have an NIV or you got a King James? I have Will you do the NIV, please? Good. Um, verse 7. Psalm 103, verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Well, his deeds or his acts to the children of Israel. Now look at this verse. There is a marked contrast here. The psalmist is talking about what the Lord did. He made his ways known to Moses. He made his acts known to Israel. Now, now, what does that mean? To know God's ways is worship. To respond to his acts is praise. Now, use this verse as a denotation verse because Moses got his ways. He, he discovered the Lord's ways in Exodus 33. It was, it was after he came back down from getting the Ten Commandments and the children of Israel had, had sinned, he had a problem with, the Lord had uh, discussed earlier in Exodus 33. In fact, you can turn there, and um, I'm, I'm going to have you start reading at verse 11. But I want to lead up to that. The Lord was upset because the children of Israel had been disobedient. So they had been disobedient. The Lord said, I'm not going to lead these people anymore. I'm not going with them. This is the Lord talking. He got upset with them. He's not going to lead them anymore. So he told Moses, you go ahead. I'm not going to lead him. So Moses makes a request to the Lord. This is what Psalms 103 was referring to. Read verse 11. Uh, Exodus 33, 11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face. Well, let's start back up. Maybe uh, verse 9. Start verse 9. As Moses went into the tent, yeah, the pillar go. of cloud would come down and stay in the entrance. Mm -hmm. While the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent. They all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. See here, let, let me pause here for a minute because here is one of the greatest statements, and I, and I do this quite a bit throughout Scripture when I'm teaching on worship, is that because we have problems worshipping what we can't see. Notice that they, when they saw the smoke of the glory of God came down, they worshipped because of what they saw. And so this is, and, and let me take the worship leaders and musicians that you understand this is so important. When people see you worship, then they can worship. Because they're going to worship what they see. What made the people worship in Exodus 33 was the glory of God that came down. And when they saw that, they worship. So unless, they can, unless people can see worship, they will not participate in worship. Sometimes I see worship leaders getting, uh, rebuking the crowd, you know, come on, why don't y'all worship? Why don't you worship then? If you worship, we'll worship. Because I need a demonstration. 
in order, and that's what you're there for, to demonstrate to me what to do so you can take us in. Read on. What does it say? The Lord would speak to Moses face to face mm-hmm. as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. But his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. This is the reason, and now here's an indication why Joshua succeeded Moses instead of some of the others, is because Joshua failed to depart out of the presence of the Lord. It was the reason that he sat at Moses' feet, and I'm saying this to some of you leaders. When you sit at the feet of your leader, choices will come to you that you didn't expect. All because you were sitting at the feet of your leader. Joshua's choice was not because of his ability. It was because of his dedication. You see, sometimes we, we pin too much on our ability, and we think just because we got a skill, that's it. It's not your skill. It's your dedication. Well, everybody, Joshua departed not out of the presence of the Lord because who else was in the presence of the Lord? Moses. And where was Joshua? With Moses. So why is Joshua chosen to succeed Moses? Because he did not depart out of the presence of the Lord. His leader was in the presence, and he was in the presence of the Lord with his leader. And when you stay in the flow, it's, it's almost a sure and you don't need a vote when you're in the flow. Let me say that over here. <laughs> you don't have to worry about a vote when you're in the flow. Yeah, well, who's going, who's going to take over? Who's going to be in charge? If you're in the flow, you don't have to worry about it because it's, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take over. Because sometimes it's not about position, it's about anointing. And sometimes God just may release an anointing. It could be anybody. And that's a flow, not necessarily an order. And so we have, we have to understand from, from that standpoint. Now, let me, let me uh, stop for a minute and get you to uh, really get this down pat. Back to uh, Psalm 103, verse 7. Um, I was going to finish that, but I'm not going to finish that because I, I don't want to get caught off somewhere else I don't want to be. Uh, so I, I think I'll hold for a minute. But I want to I take you, let's define worship. Let's define praise from Psalm 103, verse 7, okay? Worship, both grammatically in Hebrew and Greek, worship is a noun. It is always a noun. The grammatical context in the Hebrew and the grammatical context in the Greek is that worship is a noun. It is, it is the idea of giving reverence because something is worth it. That's how we got our English word worship. It is the worth of it. So we honor God because he's worth it. That's the etymology of how we got the word worship. We honor because we're giving him his worth. He's worth it. He's worth our time. He's worth our energy. He's worth our treasure. He's worth everything we got. We worship him because he is worth it. So that means that worship must be intelligent. It is, not, it is not emotional, it is intelligent. When Jesus talks about worship to the woman at the well, he says, you worship what you do not know. 
But we Jews worship what we know. So you need to have knowledge to worship. You need to know something about God. You need to have a relationship with God in order to worship. You cannot worship without a relationship. Worship is very segregated. If you don't have a relationship, you cannot worship. God will not meet you unless you have a relationship. You know what I'm saying? And it means that the idea is that when worship starts in the Garden of Eden, what we see in, in Genesis chapter 2 is that God comes in the cool of the day. He comes down and he meets Adam every evening. As he got through the work in the garden, God came down to meet him. And that meeting, anytime you meet with God, that's considered worship. Whether you meet him in prayer, whether you meet him in study, whether you meet him in music, in singing, when you meet God, that's worship. So worship is your meeting with God. It's your entrance in. I can't get in unless I have a relationship. Because first of all, only the sons can approach the father. They didn't get it over there. <laughs> only the sons can approach the father. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Which means that worship is about a family relationship. Everyone cannot enter in. You know, the qualifications for worship in the Old Testament was very clear. First of all, after in Exodus chapter 14, when he, when he got them out of the last ten plague that came along, what the Lord did was say, now, because I put the blood on the doorpost and every male child that was to be killed in Egypt was to be killed, the firstborn. So now when he set up the tabernacle in the wilderness, he only let the firstborn, 20 years and older, come to the tabernacle. The thing was to get the firstborn. Now, can I give you all some study? Because I don't have time to go to all these scriptures. But Numbers chapter 3 gives you the order of the Levites. Now, hold these because I'm coming back to the Levites. You don't have to turn to it because I'm not going to read it. Numbers 3 and then Numbers 8 discusses the dedication of the Levites. Now, I'm going to explain what the Levites are. And then... First Chronicles chapter 23 is the second reordering of the Levites. David does what Moses did in Numbers 3. And I'm going to tell you why this happened. The Levites got set apart to worship. They were the only ones that could come before the Lord was Aaron and his sons and the Levites, the tribe of Levites. So that's why we call the ministers in the house the Levites. Because David took 20,000 Levites in 1 Chronicles 23, and he divided them up. He made 4,000 singers, 4,000 musicians, and 4,000 to offer the sacrifices up before the Lord. And then he made instruments for all of them. Because David was the first one that had music involved in worship. Before David, there was no music in worship. The only music in the tabernacle of Moses was in Numbers chapter 10 when they blew the trumpet to announce they were going to war, or it was a call to worship. But while worship was going on, there was no singing. There was no music. There was nothing but waiting to see what the smoke going to rise. And the people rejoiced when they saw the smoke. Because you can't worship what you don't. Amen? So we must define worship as our getting a knowledge of worship. And uh, I gave... Um, pastor series that I did on the naked worshiper, and I need you to turn to John 4, and um, 
starting at verse 19, John 4 19. Some of us miss the whole point of John 4 because we think it's about the woman at the well. She was the backdrop to what Jesus wanted to get into because Jesus really wanted to talk about worship. He used her as a backdrop to enter into worship. Now, I, I share this in the naked worship, but I need to share this now. Before you demonize the woman who has five husbands and the one she with now is not, no woman in the first century culturally could ever get a divorce. She could not initiate a divorce. So in essence, Jesus was talking to a woman in which five men had put her away. They wrote a bill of divorcement. In Deuteronomy 24, Moses said that they wrote bills of divorcement just to put their wives away for no reason at all. So in first century Judaism, only the men could put women away. Women weren't allowed to get a divorce. It was illegal. But a man could put away a woman anytime he want. So you've got a woman who's dealing with shame who's been put away by five men. And now here's another man telling her what to do. Give me something to drink. He uses the backdrop to educate her on worship. I haven't even got the praise yet. What does he say in verse 19? Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. So he just finished telling her you have five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. He prophesied to her. Because, you know, prophetic word is about sometimes giving you wisdom on what you, of what things going on in your life, past, present, or future. That's predictive words. Sometimes God doesn't give you that just so you can be a genie and just so you can walk around just giving things. But then he's leading to something. He's got to get your attention. So she moves him off of her personal and starts talking about the conflict between Jews and Samaritans. The issue of worship now come up. You know, people tell you, man, I'm saved. I'm religious. I go to church. You, you, ain't really, you ain't really saved. What'd she say again? Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Mm -hmm. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. See, first of all, the conflict on worship is where do we worship? See, they both worshiping God. The Jews and Samaritans worshiping God, but the argument was on where is the place of worship? Is it Philippians? Is it in Raleigh somewhere? Is it in Durham? Where do we worship? She said, okay, here, here is the issue. You're so much of a prophet, you told me about my life. But now tell me, where is the proper place of worship? What does Jesus say? Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The time is coming in the new order of worship when the place will not be the issue. All of Old Testament worship was about the place. There are five places of worship in the Old Testament. And all of worship was about being at the right place at the right time. Time and place was important to worship in the Old Testament. In all, there's seven places of worship in Scripture, but five of those are in the Old Testament. First one was the Garden of Eden. I told you earlier that he met Adam in the cool of the day. Because in worship, God meets you. Because see, if, if you do it right, here's the idea. If you do it right, you don't ever have to wonder where God is. 
Because when you really worship, God gets up off of his throne. And let me give you a literal idea. He comes to find you. You don't have to worry about sitting where he is. He's coming to where you are because you want a relationship. That's what worship is about. But let me finish what he says here. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. See, you worship what you do not know. Jesus is saying what? Worship must be intelligent. That's the first point. Get that. Worship must be intelligent. You have got to learn something. You need to learn something about God. Worship is intelligent. So that's why, see, all of the names of God in the Old Testament were descriptive names. We had to learn something descriptive about them. They, they're in two categories. God's names are creative and they are redemptive. And when you learn the creative, the, the uh, creative names of God are the L's. Elohim, Elohim, El Shaddai. When you see the L, that's talking about God will create something out of nothing and make it something. So when you talk about the creative names of God, the scripture's name, he's bringing something out of nothing. That's what the L means. Now, the other names of God are the Jehovah names. And there are 17 Jehovah's in the Old Testament. And the Jehovah's means to buy back something that you lost. That means God's going to redeem it back. So when he sends, when he sends Moses down to Pharaoh, says, he said, who shall I say send me? He says, tell him that I am that I am. In other words, I'm the God that can't be blackmailed. Because sacrifices were about blackmailing your God to give you something because you bought him something. And Lord said, we're going to enter a relationship now where we ain't going to have a blackmail relationship. This ain't going to be about because you paid your tithes last week and because you showed up in the house. I'm the God that can't be blackmailed. And I'm going to do what I'm going to do just because I'm going to do it. Not because you did anything, but because I declare that you're mine. So when he says I am that I am, the duration of that, understanding that when you take the etymology about, he's really just saying I'm the God that can't be blackmailed. So nothing you do is going to make me do what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what I'm going to do simply because I'm God. It ain't nothing you can do about it. So you really understand that. She said, you worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we do know because we know the redemptive God and the creative God. We know the two descriptions of his name. Deuteronomy um, 6 and 4 is what we call the Shema. Uh, Shema in Hebrew is here. Um, here, here, Shema, O Israel, Ananah, the Lord, Shem is one. The Lord your God is one. What he's saying is Shema, Ananah, Hetro, Shem, Mera. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. One how? Not numerically, but a collective one. I am so much for, I am one. I'm every, the unity of the oneness that he's talking about in this word is a unity where oneness becomes everything. It is collective. It's, it's inclusive oneness. So when God is there, you get all of God, and he gets all of you. Wow. Are y'all learning something? Yes. So he says, first of all, number one, 
The issue is not going to be time or place in worship. That's what's going to transition. Secondly, you have to be intelligent about what you worship. You don't just lift your hands. You got to know why you lift your hands. You don't just dance with your feet. You got to know why you dance with your feet. You got to worship what you do know. Now, look, look, what he, look what else he says. Go on. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. Mm-hmm. We worship what we do know. See, Jews, you worship what Why? Because they had a knowledge of God from all of the things that they did. So they were worshiping what they did know. Go ahead. For salvation is from the Jews. Salvation. You cannot get saved unless you understand that you serve a God. The creative God was a God who came to Israel, pulled them out, brought us from Israel to translate us into what Israel said so we could be all the sons of God. Now, I don't have time to deal with this whole sons of God thing, but uh, John chapter 1, verses 10, 11, and 12. Verse 10, he came unto his own, his own received them not, but as many as received them, that's us, to them gave he a right to be called the sons of God. Children not born of natural descent, but of human will, but born of the will of God. So then we, be, we have spiritual birth. Now, now hold that, but I need you to turn to Romans 2, 28 and 29. Hold that and turn to Romans 2, 20, 29. I, you, you have to slow me up and do it because if I don't, I'll quote it. <laughs> a man is not a Jew. Oh, okay. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Paul's trying to tell you something in worship now. Remember that you got to be a Jew. He said, we, work, we Jews know how to worship. Yes, sir. So he says, so Paul said, let me explain you the spiritual Jew now. What does he say? A man is not a Jew if uh, he's... A man is not a Jew. If he is only one outwardly. If he just was born a Jew and been circumcised on the eighth day, that don't make him a Jew. Just because he got all the right, the uh, the credentials. See, church people just think because they come to church and put their name on the roll that they are worshipers. Just because you attend, you are worshiping. No, no, no. He is a Jew, is not a Jew outwardly, but what? Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. It's not outward and physical. In other words, your circumcision is your sanctification. So you, you remember with the art of, sac- of circumcision, no Jew could come before the Lord to worship unless he was circumcised. Right. Only the males could go in. So somebody had to be the doorkeeper to make sure that nothing but a circumcised male came past him. When they came in the door, they needed to lift their robes. And they pulled lots for that job. David said, my relationship with God is so good that I'd rather be a doorkeeper than to dwell in the tent of the weekend. I'll take the most despised job in the temple if it means to be in his presence. See, when you understand what David's really saying, you know, I'd rather be a doorkeeper. In other words, nobody in Israel wanted to be the doorkeeper. Because nobody could come in that was uncontaminated. And somebody had to make sure that worship was purified. The doorkeeper in the church now is the pastor. He's looking out, trying to make sure you're purified. When you come before the president, because we don't want no dirty linen in the throne room. And so when you, when you think he's being hard sometimes because he's, he's saying, y'all not really worshiping. It's because he has the eye. He has the eagle eye. And he's looking. And he's trying to get you purified. So stop getting the attitude because he's trying to instruct you in worship. He's trying to purify your worship. 
not criticize your ability. Let me say that again. He's trying to purify your worship, not criticize your ability. What does he say? No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And mm-hmm. circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. See, it's circumcision is a heart circumcision, yes, sir. not a physical circumcision. So it's not about who you are on the outside. It's about what God's done on the inside. Right. Yes, sir. Go back to John 4, and I'll get the praise. Boy, I'm not even getting as far as I thought I would. Verse 23? Verse 23, yeah. Yet a time is coming. Here we go. And has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Wait a minute. If there are true worshipers, then there must be false worshipers. There's a time coming when, he didn't say y'all weren't worshiping and, and the Samaritans wasn't worshiping. He just said the true worshipers who not going to be ritualistic Who's not going to be religious about where we at and what's the name on the church and what we doing and where I was raised in and my tradition. The true worshipers are going to worship God. How? In spirit. Now, look, spirit means the anointing. Truth means the scripture. You have to be anointed before you study the scripture. This is called the law of first mention. Don't, don't be trying to get all knowledgeable about the word until you get anointed. Because all you're going to do is become an educated fool. You don't believe me, you need to read 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And Paul talks about wisdom of this world and the wisdom that comes from God. It's two different wisdoms. And that wisdom comes from the flesh. They can't comprehend the wisdom that comes from God. It's in 1 Corinthians 2. It, it explains that whole concept because the whole idea is that if you don't get anointed, you'll never comprehend the scripture. Oh, you, you might be able to read it and dissect it, but you've got to discern some things. It's about discernment. And somebody looked at me and said, well, well he's educated. He's got, my education ain't got nothing to do with the anointing. When it comes to scripture, I got to pray and worship. And then I read. If I just go to and read, all I'm going to do is get a little intelligence. All right, so you know, a little Hebrew and Greek, and you break it up down. That don't mean nothing if you ain't been anointed. Because you still don't know what you're looking at. To one is given this gift, to another is given that gift by the same spirit. So it's not that Bishop Ellis has one gift, I has another. It's not a competitive gift. It's a unity gift. One is given this gift, another is given that gift by the same spirit. In other words, we all have the same source, but it's distributed differently. So our diversity brings unity. It should not create division. It should create unity. If your diversity, everybody's diverse in what they do, but if our diversity does not create unity, then you need to question whether or not you've really been gifted. Because the end result of your gifting is that it creates unity, not division. 
Marcus, when I teach musicians, it's not style. We all can play. That's not what they need. That's not what they ask of me. They want to know how to enter in. They already got the skill. But they want to know, Bishop, how 